We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast. Up the Duff is a podcast for fertility seekers and those who are curious about procreation. Join us as we speak to experts and hear from real people on their fertility journeys. We ask the hard questions and help them navigate to solutions on the sometimes bumpy road that is to parenthood. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank this season's sponsor, ES Fertility. They are setting the new standard in ingestibles for reproductive system health for both males and females. Make sure you check them out at esfertility.com. Big welcome back to another episode of the Up the Duff podcast. I'm your host, Brittany Darling, and today I'm joined by Stephanie Velakis. She is an accredited practicing dietitian, a certified fertility dietitian and nutritionist, and of course, the founder of The Dietologist. I'm going to chat to Steph about all things endometriosis, what it is, what are some of the signs and symptoms, how it may affect your fertility and your chances of getting pregnant, how to go about getting a diagnosis, and whether nutrition plays a role. If you're an endo warrior yourself or know someone who is, you're going to love this episode. So let's get into it. Welcome, Stephanie. And I could think of no one better to speak to about endometriosis and the role that nutrition and diet plays than you. (laughs) So welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I know that you've got a personal experience with endo um, as well as this being part of your clinical practice. So um, when we put the question out to our audience, who do you want to hear from? What do you want to know about for season two? Endo um, was top of that list. So for those that may be new and going, endo, what are they talking about? What is endometriosis or what I refer to as endo for short? Um, how might it present in someone? What are the, some of the telltale signs? And what does that journey to diagnosis look like? Yeah, so endometriosis is a condition that is chronically inflammatory in nature. And it is where tissue that is similar to the cell structure of the endometrium or the uterine lining or the womb lining, depending on how you know it. So cells that are similar to it start to grow where they perhaps shouldn't. Um, And despite it affecting with the revised statistics in Australia of one in seven Uh, people who are born with ovaries and uteruses, we uh, still don't really know the precise reason why some people will get endometriosis and why some people won't. Uh, You would think perhaps with the condition so common and in many cases so debilitating and so impactful, and we'll talk about symptoms shortly, uh, you would think that they would know what's going on there, but we don't. And until we, I imagine until we work that out, I think we are pretty distant from some kind of cure uh, for endometriosis. Yeah, yeah. And like you just touched on, one in seven, that's the new stat in Australia. I know the World Health Organization is still quoting one in nine or 10% of the population. I wonder, you know, what will happen as we get better at um, imaging and detection and testing, some of the really cool new tests that are coming out, what the Mm. prevalence, where it ends up being. Um, so what are some of the signs and symptoms that you might have endometriosis? I think most people have a handle of, you know, pain, extreme period pain, Mm. but beyond that, and I guess you can have endo as well without period pain. 
what, how does endo present and what are some of the telltale signs? Yeah, I, endometriosis is such an insidious disease and I think to a degree one of the main reasons why we've struggled to diagnose people earlier, so on average we're seeing a six- to seven-year delay from symptom onset to diagnosis, um, and that's a minim- That's honestly an average and I've met people who have gone 30, 40 years and um, only finding out in their you know, after even menopause that they have endometriosis, it's certainly not unheard of. And I think to a degree, the reason for that is because the signs and symptoms are so diverse and their intensity um, can range hugely from completely undetectable and almost what's often referred to colloquially as silent endometriosis, all the way through to debilitating pain that impacts life. And I think the media are pretty good at highlighting the, um, well, maybe not pretty good, but better at highlighting that debilitating pain side of debilitating period pain, ovulation pain, chronic pelvic pain, pain with sexual intercourse, pain with bowel motions, pain with urination. But I think we're not very good, like as a community of healthcare professionals, uh, societally, within our own selves, of tuning into things that are a little bit more subtle um, that perhaps aren't as obvious, but things like um, nausea, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, um, recurrent iron deficiency, having heavier than usual periods, having um, irregular spotting throughout your cycle can sometimes be a sign of symptom. Um, and as well, having some of those other symptoms, but maybe on a scaled down setting of not being so debilitating, but having some period pain and some ovulation pain. But when you cluster all the symptoms all together, it starts to paint a picture. So common misdiagnoses that occur with endometriosis, and this happened to, to myself included, are things like irritable bowel syndrome, because if you're presenting with dominantly gut symptoms, like I mentioned, it's easy to receive a diagnosis of IBS, which affects about 15% of people. And so it, I think this is one of the main challenges that we face with endometriosis, is that the symptom scale is so diverse from no symptoms at all, um, or very mild and subtle and quiet symptoms that can be attributed to other common concerns to extreme. And yeah. I think that uh, that is part of the challenge of endometriosis and managing it. And I think the other challenge is that our gold standard to diagnose it is a laparoscopy, which is a keyhole surgery surgical procedure uh, where they need to go in and look inside in between all the organs, the bladder, the bowel, the uterus, and see if they can see any endometriosis growth. And often this is unable to be detected in most scans um, if unless it's a very large amount of endometriosis or very progressed. And we've also need to have a really specialised sonographer to uh, even assess that. So it, it's really easily missed. There's no blood tests for it. Um, and the diversity of the symptoms are huge. And I think often in the context of fertility, we forget that infertility is also a symptom of endometriosis as well. And so some, a lot of people, about 50% of people, won't find out they have endo until they try to conceive and experience a difficulty with conception. Yeah, that was going to be my next question was um, around fertility. Like what effect and how does endometriosis affect fertility? Yeah, it's still something that we are 
trying to understand and you ask different people and you'll get different answers, which is not how it should be, but it still is in that kind of world. But from all the research that I've kind of poured through and digested, the correlation between endometriosis and fertility concerns uh, is mainly underpinned by a common theme of uh, inflammation and the impact that that inflammation can have on the pelvic environment. So the way that I always describe it to my clients is a bit like inflammation soup. So all your organs are sitting in this soup of inflammation. And so the ovaries where the eggs are trying to form are going to be exposed to higher amounts of free radicals and reactive oxidative species that can cause damage to the egg health. And so we've got that factor. We've also got that inflammation playing a role in the uh, implantation and how likely the sperm is able to get to the egg if we're talking about unassisted conception for example and then also there may be a link between inflammation and our body not being able to respond as well to the hormone progesterone and progesterone progestation is there to help you get pregnant Um, and so ultimately those few things can play a big part in terms of reducing your likelihood of conception although that's not universally always true for people with endometriosis and you certainly shouldn't rely on a diagnosis of endo as like a form of contraception uh, because 30 to 50 percent of people with endo will have a delay to conception or struggle with infertility and the remaining remaining 50 to 70 percent won't. The other thing to note is that endometriosis can sometimes warp the uh, structural um, anatomy of the pelvic organs, particularly the uterus, the ovaries, and the fallopian tubes. So you can get a blocked fallopian tube due to endo. You can get um, very distorted uh, uh, pelvic anatomy, so ovaries being stuck um, in places. Think about like almost like a spider web kind of attachment situation. And so that can affect how the reproductive organs then function as well. You can get some more indirect um, uh, impacts on fertility as well. So perhaps some of the other symptoms of endometriosis may affect your ability to conceive. So if you always have pain during sex, for example, and sex is required to conceive in unassisted conception, then that can impact your fertility too. So there's lots of kind of indirect ways that it may come into play as well, which we, we certainly can't overlook. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the pelvic pain one. We actually had someone um, call in and ask that exact question about she was experiencing pelvic pain um, and has is now seeing a pelvic floor physio. Um, but yet acknowledging how difficult how difficult it is when you're trying to conceive and you do experience pain with sex, and you know figuring out some of those workarounds. Um, so yeah, mm. super interesting. So you spoke about oxidative stress. If you do have a diagnosis mm. of endometriosis, is egg quality something um, that is of concern for future fertility? I would say that that typically becomes the main focus area when it comes to individuals who have a diagnosis of endo and you know want to conceive one day or want to start trying to conceive soon. The focus is primarily, at least from a fertility and endo dietitian perspective on egg quality to try and wrap those eggs in a nice safe bubble um, away from that inflammation potentially causing the cell damage. 
we can't obviously change the the DNA um, or the genes of those eggs, but we can certainly help protect that egg from that uh, oxidative stress. And if we we do have a few studies where they've literally drawn out that inflammation soup uh, content that I was talking about, which is called the peritoneal fluid, and um, looked at that in people with endo compared to those without, and they showed a lot higher rates of um, reactive oxidative species. So air quality is absolutely a big focus, but it's also not the only thing. I think I always talk about endo and infertility um, and fertility nutrition management going hand in hand. It's like a handshake. Ultimately, the better we optimize things like symptoms of endometriosis, the inflammatory profile, the immune dysfunction that we can sometimes see with endo, any comorbidities, any other things that you've got going on. We see higher rates of things like celiac disease, thyroid dysfunction. People can also have PCOS and endo. We can have endo and male factor infertility. So looking at the whole picture and and optimizing all the pieces of the puzzle is really important, not just hyper-focusing on the one diagnosis. Um, as someone who has endo herself, it's really easy to go into trying to conceive picture as I have endo, I'm the quote unquote problem and all the focus should be on me and no other investigations or um, perspectives need to be contemplated here. And that's certainly not the case. Not that we wish for more factors to be wrong, but you don't want to find out six to 12 months down the line that there's other things at play that you could have changed or improved um, in hindsight. So I think certainly that is an important thing to note for anyone listening because I work with a lot of people with endo and it's they're very quick to attribute perhaps new symptoms or changes in their symptoms to their diagnosis of endometriosis when something else could also be going on and that needs its own separate care and management or may even be very treatable um, and can be treated and you can feel relief from that. So I think that's a really important like little PSA for anyone listening that we don't over attribute everything to endometriosis as well because um, there could be other things going on and you don't want to have those kinds of further delays or uh, discomfort persisting because of that. Yeah, 100%. Such an important perspective. So let's try and reduce inflammation. How do we do that? What are some of your common dietary tips for reducing inflammation? Yeah. Absolutely. I always uh, I always talk about it a little bit like a fire and a fire extinguisher. You probably already know I, I love an analogy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're not going to be able to completely extinguish that, that flame just from nutrition, but certainly we can do a lot to quell it. And that's ultimately what we're aiming for. Um, so with nutrition, we want to focus on two main things. We want to be boosting our ability to protect and also reducing things that are going to exacerbate chronic inflammation. And this is coming down to an overarching dietary pattern. I think what can happen sometimes is we we laser focus on individual foods and whether they are quote-unquote inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. But what we're talking about is an overarching way that we're eating as to whether it's favouring more of an anti-inflammatory profile or a more pro-inflammatory profile. So sometimes I would get DMs on Instagram being like, is almond milk inflammatory? And I'm like, that's impossible to answer because I've got no context of your diet and we would be 
demonizing or you know health haloing a particular food with with no context at all so that doesn't really make uh it, it doesn't really work like that so the things that we want to be focusing on increasing in our overarching dietary pattern to support inflammation are foods that are rich in antioxidants so foods like our fruits and vegetables and having our darkly colored fruits and veg like berries beetroot, eggplant, being very colourful in the way that we eat so we get a broad spectrum of antioxidants in our diet to help support our full suite of antioxidants to protect our eggs. Each antioxidant will play a different role in the body. Whilst antioxidants aren't like vitamins or minerals, as in we won't literally end up dying without them, we do still need them to optimise our health. So they're certainly worthwhile paying attention to. And I get my clients to try for three or more different colours at each main meal if they can. Breakfast is always a bonus so that they're maximising their colour and variety and the other side effect of that is is that we also get an off-site bonus benefit of that to our gut microbiome's health because the gut loves a diversity of different types of plants and fruits and veggies are just two of those types of plants but certainly expanding that variety is going to be helpful for the gut microbiota which are having emerging links in the research to endometriosis as well in terms of people with endo having a distinctly different gut microbiome to those who don't and fewer kind of quote-unquote healthy species. So that would be one of my key tips and as well making sure that the fat types of your diet are dominantly focused on fats from oily fish like salmon, ocean trout, mackerel, sardines and anchovies to boost omega-3s to support healthy blood flow and that is very much known to be an anti-inflammatory fat as well as other healthy fat other healthy fat sources so avocado nuts and seeds extra virgin olive oil olives um, those foods are going to help with that fatty acid profile being more anti-inflammatory and as well herbs and spices are certainly an underrated way to boost your antioxidant profile plus they add lots of flavor to your diet so both dried and fresh is a great addition in terms of things that we want to be focusing on reducing uh, a lot of people that I see with endometriosis get really worried about things like gluten dairy um, red meat uh, soy sugar uh, and some of those things may be relevant to you and some of them won't, but on the whole, things that seem to shift the dietary pattern more pro-inflammatory are diets that are very high in saturated fats. So these are foods like butter, cream, uh, fatty cuts of meat, so think like a pork belly, for example, um, things like bacon or processed meats, things like deli meats, ham, salami, prosciutto. Uh, my time in Italy was filled with those things. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're traveling, if you're traveling overseas, uh, that one's a little bit harder to, to keep in mind. And then things like uh, chocolate or ice yeah. cream or pastries, cakes, biscuits, and things like that. So if our, it doesn't mean we need to bring those foods down to a complete zero because we do actually need some saturated fats in our world. But most people probably slightly overconsume these and with endometriosis there's probably a little bit more sensitivity that we need to be paying attention to with that particular 
group um, and being mindful of our intake of that. Um, as well, trans fats, not as much of a problem, at least certainly here in Australia, because we yeah. have a lot more regulation around industrial trans fats in our food supply. But if you're eating a lot of deep fried food and things like that, that would be something to be mindful of. And in addition, I would probably say the other big thing that just as well anecdotally people with endometriosis commonly uh, complain of is worsening symptoms with alcohol consumption. Um, yep. Some people can tolerate some types of alcohol better than others, so that becomes a bit more individualised. But certainly we know that, you know, we don't want to be really drinking much alcohol in the context of trying to conceive, uh, the ideal being zero but I do find people's sensitivity to alcohol is quite heightened with endometriosis and, yeah, often that, that can link in with that inflammation picture too. Yep. You mentioned gluten. Now, it's a yep. question a lot of my endo clients come in and ask me as well, like they would you too, you know, is gluten-free? Yes. Is there any evidence that going gluten-free is going to improve their endometriosis symptoms? Yeah. So with gluten, we gotta we got to define what gluten is. I always like to do that before we then transition to the conversation about it because often we, when I say the word gluten, people go pasta, uh, bread, pizza, you know, certain types of noodles. So gluten is the protein that is commonly found in wheat um, and barley and rye and some other types of grains like spelt and triticale. So ultimately, like I alluded to earlier, People with endometriosis are more at risk of having other autoimmune diseases. We don't really know why endo is not considered another autoimmune disease yet, um, but it's interesting that we're seeing this higher rate. So I always tell people if you're contemplating reducing or removing gluten from your diet before you do that to go and just get a celiac disease test mm. done, which is yeah. a simple blood test with your doctor, just to make sure that that isn't the case. Because if you do have celiac disease, then you will be on a strict lifelong gluten-free diet and it isn't um, a quote-unquote choice, really. Um, it's something that you need to do to manage your medical condition. So, And the level of strictness is quite different to someone who perhaps is being gluten-free to manage their symptoms of endometriosis. So I think that's always the first key step. And then also the second step is why do you what what do you feel like you might gain from that? Is it a gut symptom benefit? Is it overall pain? There is one study of about two hundred and seventy five women with endo in Italy um, who followed a gluten free diet for about twelve months, and by doing self assessed pain scales, so kind of questionnaires, they did show that seventy five percent had an improvement in their pain and twenty five percent didn't report a worsening, didn't report a benefit. So I think that shows that there is potential for it to have a benefit on the symptoms, whether it's underlying improving the disease process or reducing mm. inflammation or anything like that. It's, it's never been studied before and more and more research seems to be coming out that's kind of contesting that kind of ideology and I think it's difficult because we do know that there's a high level of success of the low FODMAP diet not to throw in more spatters into the works here but we do know that about 50 to 75 percent of people with endo uh, will respond very well to the low FODMAP diet because of how high um, the, the chances you will also have irritable bowel syndrome at, at the same time as endometriosis so 
As a result, wheat in particular is a common group between going gluten-free and also reducing your FODMAP exposures. So it's possible we haven't yet studied a group of people that are wheat-free versus gluten-free versus low FODMAP versus control. I mean, that would be the ideal. And then that sounds like a great a idea for your PhD. High resolution picture. Ah, oh, in all my spare time, you know. <laughs> I love that study in Italy. It also shows that you can be gluten-free in Italy. (laughs) Very easy to be gluten-free in Italy. (laughs) Now, you did touch on um, the gut microbiome. What about the vaginal Mm. microbiome and the endometrial microbiome? What's the research say around Mm. that and endo? Yes. So... The gut microbiome and the vaginal microbiomes may be kind of linked in their dysbiosis. We're still trying to work that part out. But we do know that the vaginal microbiota is also different in people with endometriosis, much like the difference in the gut microbiota. So we have fewer of the quote-unquote good bacteria or the lactobacillus species, which are there to really help produce acid, reduce the pH of the vagina, and try and keep the bad guys or the pathogens away. So that's obviously really important to help ensure that the vaginal microflora are nice and healthy and balanced and things that we don't want to be coming in there don't take hold. So that's a really important thing to know. And so we can aim to alter that vaginal microbiota positively in people with endometriosis or even people that have vaginal dysbiosis. So things like bacterial vaginosis or things like thrush. um, And there's a whole host of other types of um, things that can come about with vaginal microbiota problems. We also used to think that the uterine microbiome, the uterus was kind of microbiome free, like micro free. We used to think it was sterile. So when you got a when we did a C-section, we thought the baby's going from this completely sterile environment into, you know, the hospital air bacteria. But now we know that that's not true. The uterine microbiome, there is a uterine microbiome, and we think that a lot of the bacteria from the vagina migrates up through the cervix and into the uterus as well. And so we yet to really study that particularly well in people with endometriosis, but we're starting to study that more in people who are undergoing IVF. And we're showing some links that issues with the endometrial and vaginal microbiome in people that aren't having success with IVF uh, is distinctly different and has fewer of those quote unquote good species. Um, and so that's something to take note of. And, and there are tests that you can do through your doctor. There's also a whole bunch of people that do private tests of all kinds and so if that's something that's affecting you and and you're not having particularly success with that implantation phase of your IVF cycle then that's something to contemplate and look into and I know there are more studies underway in this particular area um, here in Sydney so it'll be interesting to see what we find from those studies in the coming years. Yeah it is it is a really exciting part of research that's going on because especially implantation it is so hard to know Mm. what is going on we can't see there's certain tests we can run but it's a lot of the time we don't know why some embryos don't stick or why people um yeah aren't able to to really um progress that pregnancy so yeah microbiome Mm. is definitely a very interesting um area 
So what about pregnancy? So say we mm. get pregnant. What impact does mm. endo um, have in pregnancy, if any? Yeah, I just answered this question just yesterday for a client, so I feel very well prepared. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially endometriosis itself isn't a diagnosis that will place your pregnancy at a high risk necessarily. Like you're not automatically a high risk pregnancy because you have endometriosis. You can have a pretty normal and healthy pregnancy with endometriosis by and large. We do have some early data to suggest that people with endometriosis may be at an increased risk of preterm birth Mm -hmm. uh, and having a smaller baby as a result of that preterm birth um, and also perhaps a slightly higher risk of preeclampsia. There's lots of studies going on in preeclampsia at the moment because of how significant of an impact it can have on both mum and bub's health in terms of how early babies delivered and the lifelong kind of increased risk that mum has of developing heart disease and cardiovascular diseases. So it's certainly something that is very serious and something that we want to look into more. And Kaylee, who's a podiatologist as well, is doing a PhD in this area. So Um, It's certainly something that we love to monitor in terms of the research in particular, but I think for most people who are listening to this, I think it's not necessarily something you can quote-unquote control. Like Mm. you can't control that you have endometriosis and so you can't control whether endometriosis may affect the outcome of the pregnancy itself. Um, And so I think that that's the part that is scary and is hard to let go of. But ultimately, that's where you need to lean into your care team um, and make sure you've got trusted healthcare professionals around you to, to keep you supported. There was one study that was done that showed that maintaining an anti-inflammatory diet in pregnancies with women who have endometriosis seems to be a helpful way to try and mitigate some of that risk of things like preterm birth and even preeclampsia but that was particularly in the first trimester and I think the first trimester is perhaps one of the most practically challenging times (laughs) to get those types of foods into your diet so I think it's a bit of a catch-22 situation and I think sometimes whilst this research is really awesome and helpful when you go to translate it into practice it's uh practicality or the translatability of it is really poor um and so yeah like we can only do so much and and it's not a a a bid to make anyone feel bad or guilty about about the situation because ultimately if you're barely keeping down your prenatal vitamin or you're feeling really ill and you just want the 10th cracker of the day you know lamenting about the fact that you can't have a quote-unquote anti-inflammatory diet um in that exact moment isn't isn't going to make it any better. So I think, you know, control the controllables and let go of the parts that you practically can't do and that's okay. Um, And I think as much as possible optimising your preconception health is ultimately um, going to be really beneficial so you can draw on those reserves in trimester one and then usually by trimester two and three you can start to find your feet again as well. The only other thing to note about endometriosis in pregnancy is if endometriosis um, has or has not been removed depending on how severe it is the location of it uh, what the surgeon decides to do in terms of the operation you can sometimes get some pain and I think that that is something that is not discussed because there's this idea that 
endometriosis is a menstrual disease. So get rid of menstruation and then all of a sudden you're pain free. But that is not true. And so certainly as the uterus starts to expand and grow to accommodate that growing baby, we often hear people complaining of tugging sensations, pulling sensations and pain in the abdomen. Mm. And that may be due to endometriosis being present or the scar tissue or adhesions that can form after a surgery. And all of that has to move and be mobile. And sometimes that mobility factor is quite limited in people with particularly quite progressed endometriosis like stage three and particularly stage four endo. So it's not uncommon for me to hear of clients complaining about pain in pregnancy. Um, And I think that is really not discussed very much in, in just in general, but certainly I haven't seen much data or discussion about that in the medical literature either. Yeah. I haven't seen much discussion about it either. Um, now, We've spoken about food and I want to talk about supplements, but I want to caveat the talk about supplements um, with the fact that it's, especially with endo, it's really important for it to be individualized. Where you get your supplements from is really important and obviously dose. But what are some of your go-to supplements? If you've got a client in front of you with endo, what what are the, the list of things that you're starting to think about or what are the sort of top ones that have the best evidence? Yeah, absolutely. Great caveat. Like, don't use this as your shopping list for your supplements. Um, fish oil or omega-3s of some kind from fish oil or algae oil is probably up there as, like, one of my most commonly used supplements in preconception health, in endo, in pregnancy. So kind of catch-all for these three areas we've been talking about. Um, and that's because whilst fish is a really valuable source, of omega-3s, we're not going to be able to eat and we shouldn't eat fish every single day um, because obviously that will affect your dietary variety overall and your protein variety. But ultimately we want to get that kind of therapeutic amount that's going to make a difference to inflammation, to blood flow, to pain um, and all of that kind of stuff as well. And omega-3s have a particularly unique unique function in the context of endometriosis because of their ability to modify something called prostaglandin synthesis. So prostaglandins are chemical messengers, kind of like hormones, but not quite. And their job, their delightful job, is to help the smooth muscle of the uterus to contract, to help that uterine lining shed. So that is ultimately the compound greatly responsible for period pain and so by helping to create more anti-inflammatory prostaglandins we can help with that cramping sensation and that's also a pretty decent explanation as to why you typically get a bit of a different bowel function around the time or on your period Um, I like to call them period poops and I know many people do too it's one of the most popular podcast episodes on our podcast Um, I think people are searching what's wrong with their period poops and I think that's how they find it and so prostaglandins are largely responsible for that smooth muscle contraction of other localized organs like the bowel and so you can get more frequent bowel motions so omega-3s is certainly one that's up there I think other ones that are like commonly contemplated in the context of just endometriosis outside of the context of fertility um, a really common one that people will be on will be turmeric um so turmeric uh 
has the antioxidant curcumin and curcumin has been studied in some cell studies to help with um, the endometriotic cell um, size reducing. And so that's in a cell study. So obviously we don't have incredible studies in humans. And so it can have that also have the other benefit of being quite anti-inflammatory. The downside of turmeric uh, supplementation is that it can, in some cases, um, affect your iron status. So it can interfere Mm. with iron absorption in high doses. And in some cases as well, when trying to conceive, may interfere with estrogen as well a little bit. So we've got to be careful about how we use it and the context in which we use it. Um, And because a great number of people with endo also experience iron deficiency, sometimes we can't use it at all. So then we can usually advocate for it from a dietary approach, turmeric tea, turmeric in meals and, you know, fresh turmeric in juices and things like that. Yum, curry. That's something that's, (laughs) yeah, sign me up always. Um, (laughs) So I think that's another one that's common. Um, There are some other ones too that... Uh, I have been using recently um, things like PEA. Or, oh, I love PEA, um, yeah. Which is, is specifically for neuropathic or nerve-related pain, and we understand that there is some dysfunction in the nervous system in, in people with chronic pain. So in my really those pain clients, uh, I usually contemplate something like PEA with medical supervision um, and also probably another one that we commonly use is um vitamin E and vitamin C combo, so an antioxidant combination. Um, And the other benefits of that is it seems to be quite helpful in people who are trying to conceive with endometriosis with some better IVF outcomes in those who are supplemented. So they're some of my, I guess, like go-tos. But, yes, all of them have their own caveats and yeses and nos for different situations, so definitely don't wing it. But um, things to things to bring up to your care team, I think, and things to contemplate for sure. Yeah, you, there's no harm in asking the question, right? Like you can do your research, you can Google till your heart's content, scroll the forums, do all the things, but at the end of the day you need that right care team to piece it all together and to figure out what's right for you rather than what's right for the condition. So I think you've totally hit the nail on the head there. Thank you so much for your time today, Steph. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you during our Egg Freezer compilation special episode. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Brad. It was awesome to chat all things endo and fertility. We hope that you enjoyed that episode of the Up the Duff podcast and that you're feeling more supported on your fertility journey. If you haven't already done so, please leave us a review. It will help to spread the word and support many, many people on their fertility journey. A final shout out to this season's sponsor, ES Fertility. You can check them out at esfertility.com. Until next time.